Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of Tech Swamp. We have our host and friendly membership team here today. Hey, Brad. Why, hello there. Why, hello. Caitlin, what's up? Just membership chilling. I wondered. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and of course, myself, Alex. So this month, we're sitting down with not one, but two sepsperts for a comprehensive conversation on the latest SCP-related policy updates. First up, we're being joined by Liana Wade, policy associate here at the App Association, for a policy update on all things standard essential patents, including the recent draft policy statement from the Biden-Harris administration. Later on, we're being joined by Emily Hart, COO of member company Motion Mobs, to learn more about how small businesses innovating in the app economy feel the effects of both good and bad SEP policy. Um, but before we get into that, we're going to hit tech history and run through some DC headlines. February 23rd, 2005, 17 years ago this month, the first mobile phone virus hit cell phones and their users. Um, the mobile malware, known as Kabir, was a worm that infected phones and ran the Symbian operating system used by Nokia. Uh, Kabir was spread not just through text messages, but via users' Bluetooth signal as well. Because the worm used Bluetooth to replicate and spread, non-Symbian phones and devices were able to be infected. Luckily, the worm was found to be harmless because other than replicate itself, the virus did not do any harm to users or their devices. Um, and the rest is tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in D.C. Brad and Caitlin, what are the top tech headlines? Earlier this month, the Senate Judiciary Committee took up uh, Senate Bill 2710. Longtime listeners of the pod know our slew of concerns with the legislation, but as a quick recap, we believe this bill would lead to many privacy and security concerns that would mainly impact smaller, lesser-known developers. The impact of this bill could lead to the larger, more widely known companies getting bigger and bigger, while small businesses in the app economy unjustly lose consumer trust and revenue. Unfortunately, that bill passed out of committee, and although we did see some changes, the amendments weren't quite enough to quell the concerns we have for our members. The bill could head to the Senate floor at any time, and we will give updates when that happens. So last episode, we updated you with the IRS's plans to employ the use of facial recognition software ahead of this tax season. While this decision was rolled out in an effort to help prevent fraud, many flagged privacy as well as racial discrimination concerns over the use of facial recognition software. And about two weeks after that announcement, the IRS pulled back and is now offering an alternative to facial recognition. Those who don't want to surrender their biometric data now have the option to verify their identity via a video chat with a human. More information is being rolled out, but so far we know the ID verification is for access to certain tools like the Child Tax Credit Update Portal. For the latest, head to the show notes. In some exciting regulatory news, the FDA recently cleared the first connected health app to administer insulin. The app, which is available on both iOS and Android operating systems, is from Tandem Diabetes Care and works with their X2 insulin pump to deliver insulin to patients and will be rolled out this spring. Better yet, this tool is extremely accessible as these features are available to existing users at no additional cost. 
This is an exciting step in connected healthcare, and we're thrilled to see future adoption of these tools to lead to better patient outcomes. And before we sign off what's brewing, as many of you already know, Russia has launched a large-scale attack on Ukraine. Um, this action has led to some of the largest-scale sanctions across the globe, including from the United States. These include financial, technical, and digital sanctions that could have ripple effects across the global app economy. We've already seen an uptick in cyber attacks on Ukrainian government websites, and there are concerns around Russia avoiding the financial sanctions by employing the use of cryptocurrency. The ongoing situation is likely to impact legislative and regulatory movement here in D.C., but we'll keep you posted on all things relevant in future episodes and, of course, in the show notes. Our thoughts are with all those affected by these attacks. And that's all for What's Brewing. As we mentioned earlier, we're being joined by Liana Wade, policy associate here at the App Association and one of our resident SEPsperts. Hey, Liana, thank you for joining us for your very first time here on TechSwamp. Yes, I'm so excited. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you and we're ready to dive right in. So um, you are here for a policy update on all things standard essential patents, um, including an update on the recent draft policy statement from the DOJ, USPTO, and NIST, um, which is something our members actually participated in. So before we get into the ins and and outs of the actual policy statement itself, you know, first and foremost, maybe could you just talk a little bit about like what a draft policy statement actually like is? Sure, absolutely. So uh, as you can probably tell from the name, draft policy statement generally uh, doesn't mean something is immediately law or finalized. It's uh, sometimes includes a comment period where interested stakeholders, whether they're from uh, private sector or public sector, can provide their input. Um, And it's where relevant agencies come together to discuss um, exactly what's going on in the policy. So um, sometimes these agencies will take meetings with orgs like ours to discuss future impacts until the final rule is issued later on. Absolutely. And I know that we're so excited um, to represent our members and their interests in those meetings. Um, But with this draft rule, I kind of want to get into to what's in there, um, what's being detailed in the draft rule, and especially um, taking the draft rule, looking at that or draft policy statement, um, looking at that as what it's compared to in the current SEP environment. Like what what do we like in the draft policy statement versus what do we see in the current SEP environment? Sure, sure. So to give a quick background, uh, late last year, uh, the Department of Justice, the Patent and Trademark Office, and the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, jointly released this proposed policy statement that updates and improves guidance on standard essential patents. Uh, Here at ACT, we are longtime proponents of fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory licensing terms in the SEP space. So we're excited to support these me- these measures, and um, I'll tell you a little why. So some recent changes in policy driven by a few big SEP holders have created uncertainty around the standard system. This uncertainty has led to instability, uh, creating an environment that would likely deter innovators, especially our small business members who often have the most at risk. The same uncertainty uh, that could prevent small businesses from innovating the next big idea is just as likely to deter the investor interested in helping this idea grow. 
So uh, again, the instability in the SEP space creates a major risk for potential investors, leaving uh, the little guy, small business innovators, developing the next generation solutions high and dry. So further inaction by our leaders in this space and across governments can really create deeper pockets of insecurity that reach uh, and deter the app economy's future innovators. Uh, this draft regulation provides the swift action needed to ensure FRAN terms are met and that all members of the app economy have access to standards. Fantastic. Thank you for that insight. That was really, really informative and helpful. Uh, you know, we saw several of our member companies join our effort as we submitted comments. So I feel like we have to talk about the process, you know, next steps and the, the potential impact on our member companies. What would it look like if the dra draft regulation is either implemented or not? Sure, so um, commenting on the process first, originally uh, public submission for comments related to this draft policy statement were open for 30 days, but a week after the, roll the rollout, the comment period was extended to 60 days, prompting hundreds of comments by February 4th uh, when the comment period ended. And as you mentioned, our members uh, came out in droves, joined forces to participate in this comment period, and we're so excited about it. Uh, their comments and many others have pointed out that the new draft policy moves things much closer to a balanced uh, standards and SEPT licensing ecosystem, um, really promoting you know good faith negotiations, uh, though there are areas that can and should still be improved on it. Um, so uh, thinking of next steps moving forward, we expect the DOJ, uh, PTO, and NIST uh, will evaluate all of the comments that have been submitted and will issue a final version of the policy statement. We hope to see this final version move through the remaining steps in this process, swiftly making these much needed um, improvements. And once it is finalized and released, we hope that the DOJ, USPTO, and NIST policy will provide lasting certainty that will enable innovators of all sizes to compete across different consumer uh, and enterprise markets. Um, so I know that was a lot, but really <laughs> um, thinking about it from the, from the small business perspective, what does all that really mean for small businesses innovate, innovating in this space? Um, if the draft statement is enforced, um, it would lead to a more balanced system for all players um, involved with SEPs, as I mentioned. Uh, SEP holders would receive fair compensation for their patented technology. The policy uh, would, get, would simply give innovators, small and large alike, the certainty needed to access standards to produce and sell operational products. Um, and uh, a bonus leveling, it really does level the playing field in this way that leads uh, to consumers benefiting from more products at a lower price point, uh, thanks to a more fair and competitive space for all innovators. So um, conversely, if the draft policy statement on SEPs fails uh, and does not move forward, the outcome could be detrimental uh, for small businesses throughout the app economy, uncertainty around standards and the licensing of SEPs and the way uh, the way they're used could lead to our small business members having to take a bad deal with a large SEP holder. 
in a confusing, unfair negotiation process um, that leads to temporarily halting production of their products or even worse, um, they could be faced with large fees that could drain their resources, um, putting their entire enterprise at risk. So point blank, if small, if small businesses are facing uncertainty when innovating on top of standards, they might not enter the app economy um, or begin to innovate at all. Which would be so terrible. Um, you know, as we say all the time, like our our members are really a lot of the folks who are driving innovation, um, especially in sort of this Internet of Things connected world sort of space. So it would be so terrible uh, for them to be kind of kept out of it because of uncertainty in the way um, that, um, you know, the administration is really approaching standard central patents uh, and how they regulate them. So um, this is a really important one. Um, and I know we threw a lot of information at you. So um, not to worry, there's tons of stuff to find in our show notes, both about um, this statement, about how our members have been thinking about and using standards, um, and some more information about next steps. So please make sure to uh, check out the show notes. Um, Liana, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so great. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're joined right now by Emily Hart, COO of member company Motion Mobs. Hey, Emily, what's up? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic to have you. Uh, so before we dive into all things SEPs, we want to make sure that you have an opportunity to give our listeners the 411 on Motion Mobs. Maybe a little background on who you and the team are, the work you're doing, you know, all the good stuff. Absolutely. Happy to share. So Motion Mobs is a woman-owned business in Birmingham, Alabama. We do custom software development and technical consulting. We get the opportunity to work in a wide variety of industries from healthcare to transportation to retail to nonprofit. We really get a taste of all kinds of different businesses over the course of each year. My role with the team is to oversee day-to-day -day operations and I work pretty closely with our strategy team. Each one of our clients comes to us with a general idea, maybe some goals that they want to accomplish with the project that they're discussing with us. And it's the strategies team uh, responsibility to help walk them through all of the big questions and really help define what is it that we need to build in order to achieve the goals that that client has set out. So that's my role there on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. And then I also get the awesome opportunity to dive into some more technical things with the dev team from time to time. The dev team that I'm intimidated when I hear words like that, because, you know, I had an internet connection problem earlier. And like I said, I felt like a developer <laughs> trying to solve it. So mad respect for the work you guys are doing. Um, now that we've, you know, kind of set the stage a little bit, I want to get into the nitty gritty. Uh, Motion Mobs always shows up for AppCon and the virtual con experience has absolutely been no exception. Emily, you have been a consistent voice when it comes to SEPs and the advocacy that we do around standards. 
So through these AppCons the past few years, plus the most recent panel that you sat on, um, you've shared some extremely valuable perspectives and insights around standards and SEPs. A POV, you're a small business owner and deal with SEPs, if you will. But seriously, I, I want to talk about SEPs and the way that Motion Mobs uses standards when developing these tech-driven solutions for your clients. So how do you use and work with SEPs? Absolutely. As a small business owner, most of our clients are also small business owners. I like to say that we all operate in the world of limited resources. It means that we don't have the time and our clients don't have the time and none of us have the money to reinvent the wheel every single time. As a result, it means that whenever we build a product, we are relying very, very heavily on existing pieces of software, existing functionality and hardware. And it's our responsibility to put that all together in a way that helps our client accomplish their goal. SEPs fit in here in that we rely an awful lot on the functionality that a lot of us take for granted. So when we develop for a smartphone or if we develop for a television or an internet of things device, there's a lot of baked in functionality in that particular device that we expect to have access to as developers. Um, you know, as developers, both for Apple and for Android, we get access to those existing SDKs. We got the chance to work with one of those when we built GuideSafe for the state of Alabama, which was the COVID-19 exposure notification app that came out in 2020. We had the opportunity through that project to work with the Bluetooth detection of how close devices were to each other to determine whether or not there was a risk for a COVID transmission there. That was an example of us using the technology that Apple has in their device and Google has in their Android devices that we were simply using through them. We weren't the ones who actually built the Bluetooth functionality or built out those algorithms, those were granted access to us through our relationship as developers with Apple and Google. We also have a client right now who is building for a very specific display model. And the displays that they have chosen are from Samsung. Samsung has all kinds of chips and pieces and things like that that are part of this SEP world. Ultimately, if they get stuck in any kind of litigation or claims or anything like that about the particular components that are being used in the devices that we're developing for, we and our clients end up bearing the brunt of, oh my goodness, these devices can't get imported into the US or they can't be sold right now. So that leaves the burden on us as developers to either pivot to a new device, to sit back and wait, for those issues to clear through the courts. And it's a really great example of how what looks like just a big company versus a big company issue can really trickle down to impact the small businesses that are simply relying on a ecosystem to function all the way from start to finish. Fantastic, and thank you so much for all of that helpful information. It's great to hear your perspective. Now, as we discussed with Liana earlier on the pod, we recently saw the DOJ, USPTO, and NIST release a draft policy regulation around SEPs. We know that the draft regulation would do a lot when it comes to leveling the playing field in the SEP space and keep bad actors from taking advantage of vulnerable innovators. 
What does something like this draft reg mean for motion mobs and other small businesses? One of the things that I really appreciate about the latest draft policy is that it does include language around what would be considered reasonable negotiation. And in the case of small businesses, most small businesses don't have the amazing relationship that Motion Mobs does with ACT. When Motion Mobs receives some kind of malicious threat or warning or something like that, we know who we can ask. And we can say, what's your perspective on this? Is this something that we need to take seriously? There are a lot of small businesses out there that if they received, for example, the rude and threatening letter <laughs> that we received upon our development of GuideSafe about us infringing on a patent that was being used for that Bluetooth technology, they may have responded with forking over additional funds. They may have gotten caught in a lawsuit of some kind, but through our relationships, we knew that that was an opportunity for us to say, we're going to ignore you and not respond. But in the case of a lot of other small businesses, they just don't have the experience. They don't know. And when bad actors come into the space and think that they can extort additional funds from small businesses who don't know any better, that impacts the entire market. It means that small businesses may not be able to fairly compete. It means that small businesses may go out of business. It may mean that consumer products are more expensive. And we start feeling these ramifications all the way across the market, whether we're talking B2B or B2C. I would love to see the draft policy as it is now at least go ahead and get accepted. I know that the courts will probably work through a lot of interpretation. And so this is really just a starting place, but it does feel like a really good first step in establishing a level playing field for small businesses to be at the table with some of these really, really large SEP holders. Absolutely. And and it's still important to note, you know, that these SEP holders are still going to receive fair compensation for their patented technology. Um, it just really gives these, you know, small and medium-sized innovators the certainty to access the standards um, to, to sell these and create these products. Um, but we're going to have some links in the show notes. So if you're curious about anything that we mentioned or that Emily mentioned, including the awesome work that Motion Mobs is doing, you know where to go. Head to the show notes. Um, but Emily, it has always been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Tech Swamp. Thanks so much for having me. I always enjoy the conversation. And now it's time for a random identifier. Brad, you are up first. I sure am. And <laughs> this month's band of choice is going to be a rather ridiculous band name. And that is Buzzard, Buzzard, Buzzard. Yeah, you heard that right. Three, three of the same words in sequential order. Uh, they are a band <laughs> from Cardiff, Wales, Ooh. and they are some of the most English, UK-looking folks that I have ever seen or heard in my life. But boy, they make some fantastic music. And actually, at the time of recording, their debut full-length album comes out tomorrow. So uh, pretty exciting. They have a great song called new age millennial magic which i just think is a great <laughs> concept and lyric uh 
yeah, some cool guitars, pianos, voice, uh, fun band. I love that. I feel like both the band name and the song title sound like things like you know when you're like talking to your friends and you say something and then you're like oh that'd be a great band name or like oh that'd be a great (laughs) song name i feel like both of the band name and the song name sound to me like things that could have come from that i think you're absolutely right and uh, i'll i'll link the the video to that song in the show notes as well it is equally absurd i think the majority of it they're like singing from within a pile of trash it just, oh, I, nice. I just have no idea how to explain these guys other than weird, but good. Feels like home. <laughs> I love that. Um, That's right. <laughs> Caitlin, what do you have for us? Um, I'm going to try to keep it uh, as tight as possible, but I could really talk about this show for days, if not <laughs> longer. Um, and I need to preface this with I never watched any of the Magic Mike movies, um, right. ever. Um, and it's not because like I'm a hater. It just didn't happen for me. Um, but this past weekend I went to a cabin with some of my friends and, um, we were like looking for some, something stupid to watch. And one of my friends put on Finding Magic Mike on HBO Max. Um, and initially I was not super caring about it, but then I realized this was an emotional show and I'll tell you why. Um, it's because Finding Magic Mike basically puts, I think it's like 10 or 12, like guys together to to be the next like sexy guy that's dancing at the magic mike show in las vegas but the guys that they um had signed up for the show uh were all guys who quote lost their magic so like maybe some are like struggling with body image issues or like emotional issues a couple of the guys were like veterans and dealing with ptsd and self-worth and stuff like that and i know that normally we see these kinds of like bonding uh, shows happen between um, women traditionally yeah. but it was very so heartwarming to see these like um, you know kind of like buff guys like macho men like be vulnerable about like deep emotional issues or like physical insecurities or whatever and it was just like it was a very good feel good show I laughed I cried I was like these men are very attractive <laughs> Um, so 10 out of 10 would recommend, I would say it is a show, I would say maybe not for the whole family, um, <laughs> but I would say that like, if you have adult children, maybe for the whole family. Uh, but yeah, that's my, that's my random identifier. I and I hope, that. I don't think I'll need to put an explicit rating on this episode of Tech Swamp because I talked about this, but I am willing to, to leave that option on the table if we need to. <laughs> no, I don't think so. It sounds very wholesome. And it also sounds like it's sort of promoting a conversation that isn't had enough. So I appreciate that about it for sure. Absolutely. Very cool. Um, well, my random identifier is um, sort of music and bro- book related. Um, I... Um, have been reading a book uh, called History is Music, and it's by Questlove, who is the drummer and sort of musical genius uh, affiliated with The Roots. Not affiliated, like he is in The Roots. Um, I should say like he is a full (laughs) member. He's not just affiliated with them. He is, in fact, a founding member of The Roots. Um, And um, I, um, so I knew that he sort of like writes things, and I know that he's like taught a couple like classes at NYU and stuff. but the only book that I'd ever really sort of had access to of his before was about food mostly. And it was sort of like part cookbook, part sort of exploration of food. But anyway, I picked up this book. Well, I received it for Christmas technically. And, um, 
And it's freaking excellent. Um, so it's about history and then it's about sort of like the relationship that music had with that time in history. So each mm. chapter is a, is sort of covers something from a year. And um, what it really is more is black history and black music and sort of the relationship between the two and sort of how they furthered um, other conversations and um, moments in history during that year. Um, and it's fascinating um, and really, really good. It has some like deep cut like playlists in it too which is always a delight um i think especially when there's like a musical genius like quest love at the helm um you know that any song that he's talking about is just going to be like fantastic um but also like it's fascinating i mean it's like certainly events and and sort of moments in history and you know you you may have or may not have heard of before but a lot of the music that he's really talking about i was i just didn't know very well um it's been fascinating to read um, I'm really, uh, I couldn't recommend it more. Um, yeah, it's been really great to read. Very cool. Yeah. That sounds super rad. What would you say is the most interesting thing that you've learned thus far from reading the book? Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, I was really fascinated by the conversation that he had sort of around black exploitation films and, um, sort of the music that powered them, um, and how the music really, took off in a way that the films never did so like a lot of music that was written specifically for black exploitation films became a part of national conversations in a way that the films didn't like i think um like a lot of the music from like superfly and like isaac hayes like that all came out of the film um but we think of as sort of more of a musical genre than we do of sort of something that was essentially a score for a film um and i think that's fascinating that is that kind of just blew my mind i know (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, folks, that is it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And we now have transcripts available. You can find them in our show notes as well as on podscribe.com. Just search Tech Swamp. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate review. Five stars on That's all for today, folks. Everyone, say bye. Bye. Bye.